Welcome to the Virtual Pharmacopedia Podcast, your source for pharmacy news, updates, and more. Hello, welcome to the first recording of the Virtual Pharmacopedia Podcast. Today, we have Dr. John Easter joining us. Dr. John Easter is currently the director of CMOP, the Center of Medication Optimization through Practice and Policy, and has been on the faculty at the UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy since 2016. Dr. Easter has an extensive background in pharmaceutical industry and healthcare policy and has worked with many pharmaceutical companies such as GSK and Ortho McNeil Pharmaceutical after graduating pharmacy school from the University of Georgia. We really appreciate your time and thank you for coming on, Dr. Easter. So, Dr. Easter, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, first of all, Edward, it's great to be here and I think this is a, a fantastic initiative that you all have kicked off. and. Always great to talk with students about my career path and more importantly for them, giving them ideas and options for what they might want to do in in the future. And so my sort of passion first started uh, for pharmacy back in high school. And uh, a friend of mine, uh, his father worked for uh, Eli Lilly and I thought, you know, developing new medications and solving uh, real world healthcare problems sounded fascinating. And so I pursued uh, a lot of science in high school, and then I pursued um, my pharmacy education at University of Georgia. And as I got into pharmacy school, I, I quickly um, discovered that although pharmacy has many, many awesome pursuits in terms of career paths, and that's one great thing about the profession, that what really uh, piqued my interest was the pharmaceutical industry. And so I uh, after graduating and passing my boards, I, um, I took a position at GSK in, uh, in the Georgia area and for the next 20 years pursued, uh, pursued that career path with Glaxo, then GSK in several different areas. And, uh, you know, it was interesting and, and that's one thing about the industry that is just so fascinating that it's so broad. There's so many things that you can do within the industry itself. So I had uh, eight positions over 20 years uh, that included um, seven promotions uh, along the way. I, I was able to live in North Carolina and Georgia and the state of Washington. And um, so just a very diverse uh, career with, uh, with a lot of good relationships uh, along the way. Well, that seems like quite an extensive career. And um, we're really happy to have you on here. So uh, I wanted to kind of ask you about your involvement in CMOP. So what exactly is CMOP and uh, how has it impacted the practice of pharmacy since its implementation? Well, CMOP was launched uh, two uh, and a half years ago. Uh, and so I left GSK in the policy area to come to, uh, to UNC to, to start this center. And I'll, I'll begin by saying that it was really the vision of our former dean here, now Provost Bluen, who saw very clearly that we were doing a great job training pharmacy students, but we weren't doing as good of a job preparing pharmacy students for 
new fields and new pursuits in the care delivery system. So we do a great job dispensing medications and working in clinical pharmacy within hospitals. But how are we evolving towards patient care? How are we evolving towards new services? How are we evolving towards working with team-based care with physicians hand-in-hand? And so CMOP was really birthed based on that vision to say we need to we need to look at real world uh, and applied research projects. We need to get into the community pharmacies and into the primary care clinics and test new technologies and test new services and develop evidence and, and understanding and data and use that data to educate healthcare leaders and policymakers to show them where pharmacy fits and why uh, optimizing medications is is so important. So we've spent the last two years uh, working really hard to build the team at CMOP, which is filled with uh, uh, research faculty members and research associates mm-hmm. and clinical pharmacists and project managers mm-hmm. and MBAs, just a full team to really facilitate towards that real world and applied uh, research. So I'm sorry about that. So um, kind of taking a step back, would you mind telling us about your experience at uh, GSK and uh, how the times you spent there influenced your interest in policy and industry? Sure, sure. So I'll let you know that I, you know, I spent 20 years there. I had seven different, eight different positions um, along the way. And I got interested uh, and really developed a passion around policy about 10 years into my career at GSK because I saw the impact that the the federal and state government has on access to medications. If you are uninsured, it makes it very difficult mm-hmm. to get access to medications. Uh, and, and so the, hence the development of uh, the Medicare Part D program and the further development of state Medicaid programs. And so I, I developed a passion around access to medications in the role of the government. And for the last uh, 12 years I was at GSK, I worked in the health policy area. And some some people think that health policy might just be making, making up rules, but really what healthcare policy is doing is solving problems. Mm-hmm. So think about our healthcare problem that we have today. We, uh, we spend $450 billion a year on medications. Uh-huh. Data suggests that we spend over $528 billion a year on fixing medication management problems. Really? So if you think about it, we actually spend more fixing medication problems people bouncing back to the hospital, people having drug-drug interactions, people not getting to clinical goals with their diabetes medications. We actually spend more on mismanagement of medications than we do on medications. So that's a huge problem. And so policy is really created to first identify um, that, that problem, understand the root causes of that problem, and then put legislative and regulatory fixes in place that solves that problem. And the only way that you can really do that is through evidence and data. Uh, It's not my smart opinion. We actually need to get out to the real world and solve these problems as we we go and create data and evidence to suggest how to solve that problem. 
So when I was at GSK, we created a project um, called uh, Early Days. Uh, we helped to fund the the Asheville project, was which mm-hmm. was a, a project of pharmacists in Asheville, North Carolina, helping diabetic patients that work for the city of Asheville to take better care of themselves and take take their medications. And it showed that those pharmacists uh, helping those patients could lower overall healthcare costs by 35%. And so we evolved our demonstration projects along the way so that we could create evidence uh, to suggest better ways to, uh, to solve those problems. Yeah, 35% seems like a very substantial amount. Now, do you see these types of interventions kind of moving from the small sample size to maybe being implemented on a national level in the next couple in the next couple of years or next couple of decades. I think that's the 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 that's the the key point uh, of all this, Edward. Is for for a long time we have had a project like the Asheville project. We uh, we sponsored other events uh, and projects while I was at GSK. One was called the Diabetes Ten City Challenge, which was to take the Asheville project and uh, to ramp that up and to scale that out. We also created another project, a patient-centered medical home project here in North Carolina, working with our partner, Community Care of North Carolina. Uh, and what they had done is created a medical home uh, program with physicians across the state of North Carolina so that the 1.6 million Medicaid patients would have a a medical home that would help to coordinate their care. And they showed good results doing that. So we thought, well, why why couldn't the GSK employees also take part in that patient-centered medical home project? And so we actually added uh, our employees with the Medicaid employees uh, to that medical home model and studied that for for five years to look at the impact on medications and the impact on on care coordination and quality. And um, so it's within those that experimentation um, at the North Carolina level, and I believe we're, we're leaders in North Carolina doing that, that we now need to look at how to scale that up at a national level. Because think about it, if you are a policymaker in Washington, D.C., and you're responsible for the Medicare program age 65 and over across the country. You need to look at different tools and services and programs that can have a dramatic impact on that. And so that's part of what we're doing in our center now is we have added expertise in the implementation science area so that as we test these new interventions and medication optimization services, that we can wrap implementation support around it, which essentially gives us um, a scalability or a, a best practices roadmap so that we can look at taking these initiatives more broadly and having bigger impact. So um, what can we as students or we as citizens of the United States that don't work in this type of field uh, do to kind of support these initiatives and help uh, progress it along the track? You know, I think it it starts with... Um, good, good clinical care. And so as students, as pharmacists, if you are engaged in primary care and AM care, if you're engaged in community pharmacy, or even if you're engaged in hospital, uh, I think beginning to think broader 
uh, about the impact of how clinical pharmacy services and community pharmacy services can be can be broadened. So to so to be curious and mm-hmm. to think uh, in that area about how we can make a bigger impact. I think the other thing is to be curious um, about the state of healthcare in in the U.S. We all have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers who uh, have a story about um, maybe not receiving the best care. Mm. And maybe they uh, ended up having to go to the hospital that could have been uh, avoided. Or maybe they had a surgery that uh, didn't go so well and kept them in the hospital. Um, And I think it's that sort of interest in, uh, a personal interest in how can we improve the healthcare system based on what we are doing uh, in our clinical practices today. And then we wrap uh, sort of this real world evaluation around that so that we can sort of look to test new models. So I think the first thing is look at what we're doing today. Be curious about better ways to go about providing tools mm-hmm. and services and working with teammates and team, team, team-based care. And then um, taking an interest in um, working with people to make our system uh, uh, better. Uh, Because um, uh, I had an old boss that would always tell me that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Mm -hmm. And and what what that really means is if we in the profession of pharmacy aren't stepping up, uh, to create new services and tools and, and interventions that can help improve care and, and, and drive towards efficiency, then someone else is, is going to do that. That's uh, actually a very profound statement. Like I never really thought of it like that, but that's that actually that is very true. If you're not at the table, you're definitely on the menu. And I feel like we as pharmacists really need to step up and kind of advocate for our profession and try to contribute best to make, making policy changes as we can. So um, how do you see healthcare policy changing in the next five to 10 years? Well, you know, it's um, it, it, we're, we're really getting to the point where we have some landmark legislation that has has been passed through the Affordable Care Act. We've been implementing that now um, for for eight years. There have been a lot of alternative uh, proposals as to how to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Um, But uh, to date, uh, the Affordable Care Act has has maintained um, its, its hold in terms of reforming Healthcare, And so I think that will continue to play out. The problem, Edward, is we still have almost 30 million people in this country who do not have health care insurance, uninsured. And we also have uh, our health care system and the cost of our health care system is consuming over 19 percent of our gross domestic product. So we are our health care system is continuing to grow sort of out of control. And at this point, our Medicare trust fund uh, will be bankrupt uh, mm-hmm. and insolvent in 2028. So, you know, the trends continue to suggest that we are moving towards an unsustainable model. We still have a lot of uninsured uh, people who need health care insurance. And um, ultimately, the solution, the policy solution, and here's the key to your question, 
is going to be um, enhancing the move towards value-based care. And I know Mm -hmm. we talked about this a lot in, in my class when you were in there this past fall, but it truly is moving from a healthcare system that's paid, that's based on volume mm-hmm. um, to one that is based on outcomes and quality. And so the example there is uh, my son has asthma and he twisted his ankle uh, playing baseball a couple of years back and uh, we took him in to be treated. And, um, you know, they, they ruled out a, a broken ankle and they put a compression wrap on there and gave him some ibuprofen and sent him on his way. So that was sort of a fee for uh, a volume service, right? So they just performed services on what was wrong, the wrong with him and sent him on his way. Well, what they didn't ask about was his asthma. And he, unbeknownst to me, had been waking up at night coughing Um and uh, which was an indication that his asthma was uncontrolled. And um, when he, it was during the spring when he twisted his ankle and then the oak trees were blooming, which is a big mm-hmm. trigger for him. And uh, long story short, um, three days later, he had an exacerbation of his asthma and ended up in the emergency room. And in a fee for value system, the providers would have information in front of them, they would have incentives to drive quality and lower cost, and they would have treated him not only for that ankle, but they would have treated him for his asthma, and they would have been asking him if he's had nocturnal symptoms or having breakthrough symptoms. And so I I put that illustration out there because that is how policy is going to change, that we are going to shift how we pay for care that's going to hold providers and pharmacists accountable for a population of patients and helping control cost and keep them out of the hospital, keep them healthier, more emphasis on preventative care so that we are not uh, treating so much on the back end when exacerbations happen. So think about new ways to pay. Think about new ways to incentivize team-based care. Think about new ways to drive medication adherence Mm -hmm. and disease management programs. That's really where all this is going, which at the end of the day, I I hope everyone out there listening who is in pharmacy sees this as a giant opportunity for for us to be able to provide more value to the system. Yeah, that seems very, very promising, kind of moving from this um, acute care model to going to a more holistic uh, a holistic model of care where the pa- where the patient's chronic issues are also going to be defined and overall that's going to bring down all the costs of health care. That seems like a great undertaking and I'm really excited to see how health care starts to evolve in the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. So um, what advice do you have for students wishing to pursue a career in phar- pharmacy policy? You know, I I think it goes back to some things we were talking about before. I think if if students are um, are curious about healthcare transformation, if they're curious about how uh, we provide care to indigent patients through the Medicaid program and how we provide care to the elderly population through Medic, uh, I'm sorry, Medicaid with the indigent population, Medicare, with the elderly population, um, and how we're shifting 
uh, our payment models towards value-based care, I think that um, would indicate um, you know, curiosity and an interest to learn more about policy. Um, I think if you are really fascinated with the future of our profession, so so just yesterday, Amazon, which is how everybody receives uh, you know their goods and services mm-hmm. these days on their front porch, just announced that they were going to buy um, a small company called PillPack uh, for a billion dollars. And PillPack, uh, obviously through adherence packaging and uh, sort of remote uh, online pharmacy presence, can deliver medications to almost every state in the country already. So that is the first direct play for Amazon to get into uh, the prescription delivery business, which is, you know, on the cusp, a threat to our community pharmacy um, uh, colleagues uh, around the country. But at the same time, does that represent an opportunity? And it does. And because you can't just deliver medications to someone's front porch and expect that the outcomes are going to be there. Remember, we're going to value-based care. So then how do you wrap around services for those patients at the very, very local level, potentially in their home? And who's going to provide those services? Well, clinical pharmacists are in the best position Mm -hmm. uh, and community pharmacists are in the best position to do that. So I would say if you're if you're curious about how care is provided to these populations, if you're curious about the future of our profession based on this changing environment, then I would say um, uh, learning more about healthcare policy and how policy can shape our profession is is a good idea. I'll I'll mention we are uh, having our first health policy fellow in CMOP Center, and uh, she starts next week. So um, I would suggest if uh, students are out there and they would like to learn more about the nuts and the bolts and how specifically they could get involved in learning more about pharmacy and health policy, um, that they could certainly come pay us a call in, in CMOP and get to know and meet our new health policy fellow uh, who will be doing all sorts of activities in terms of taking the research that we're doing and translating that into policy position papers that we can then use to educate uh, folks. And so I think there's things we're doing right here in the school um, that would be uh, uh, good examples that students could sort of wrap their heads around. So uh, speaking of uh, your new fellow, should current students consider either residencies or fellowships after their four-year program to kind of gain a more holistic view of uh, industry and policy? You know, that's a, that's a decision that I think each, each student needs, needs to make. They have um, commitments associated mm-hmm. with, with them, certainly. Um, there are um, uh, job opportunities for students uh, right out of the PharmD program, certainly. Um, but I tend to take a more um, long view of, of thinking about my career. And, you know, I often tell people when they talk about the success that we were able to have at GSK and creating these programs, 
I often tell people that it took me 20 years to become an overnight success. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and so I think that's one thing I like to impart on students is um, let's, you know, as anxious as we are to make an impact, as anxious as we are to begin our careers, um, let's let's think about our careers in terms of a marathon and making an impact over the course of our career. And if you look at it that way, investing a year to two years in a residency program, if you want to go deep in a clinical area of expertise, or if you want to go deep into health policy, or if you want to go deep into medical affairs within the pharmaceutical industry, um, all of those um, would would probably best be benefited um, over the course of a 20-year career by investing one, two years up front. Um, so there's, there's knowledge gain there, but I think sometimes even more importantly, there's relationships built there. And so think about a fellowship or a residency program and the connectivity that you build and the relationships you build with mentors, fellow students, others in this area, which open up a whole world of networking opportunities that will give you um, career opportunities that you would have never uh, known to be possible. So um, the knowledge gain is nice uh, around fellowships and residencies, but always keep in mind that um, at the end of the, the day, careers are really built around relationships. Yeah, that's uh, that's very true. And I feel like that's becoming more and more apparent as I go through school. Like the, like you said, the knowledge base is very important, but networking and kind of establishing yourself um, within the profession is also very, very important. And um, I think that's a very important issue to bring up as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, looking back on your career in education, is there any other advice that you would give to students pr currently pursuing a degree in pharmacy? You know, the, the thing that we haven't touched on um, at this point that, uh, you know, I, I think you know, I think we've talked about being curious. We've mm -hmm. talked about building networks and relationships. We've talked about the importance of of uh, of, of policy and, and staying engaged. Um, so I guess two things. I think um, our professional uh, associations are are fantastic avenues for us to get engaged in the policy debate, uh, in the advocacy for our profession as well as going deeper to enhance our, our clinical knowledge. And so I would, I, I, I also, and I see this so much at, at our Eshelman School of Pharmacy, engagement in professional associations, really, really important, again, to build the network um, and to, to learn how to advocate for our profession and to, to, to go deeper uh, in, in the areas of advocacy and policy. Um, I, I would also, uh, suggest that um, uh, for people who think they might be interested in industry, really pursue um, uh, that path uh, while you're in school. There's, there's, you know, a lot of diversity, as I mentioned. Uh, you know, I had eight uh, positions acro across the, my 20 years. Um, there's safety. There's pharmacovigilance. There's uh, regulatory, which is part of that. There's drug development. There's medical affairs, medical science liaisons. There's market 
access and uh, what, what we call payer marketing opportunities to facilitate, uh, you know, access to medications. Um, there is uh, uh, disease management uh, opportunities. So th- there, there are so many components to the industry um, that uh, might not be apparent to students if they just look uh, on the surface. And so that would be another area of, device, uh, of advice. If you are interested um, in, in some of the pursuits that I just mentioned, um, you know, work to, to network, um, work to pursue fellowships, work to pursue even informational interviews like we're having today with people who have been in the industry um, to, to look, le- learn about that diversity to see if any of those opportunities might be right for you. Okay. Well, uh, Dr. Easter, thank you so much for coming on and uh, giving this interesting, informative session. I feel like I personally gained a lot of insight about policy and industry and some is- and some current issues that um, healthcare is facing right now. And I'm sure that the listeners have learned a great deal as well. Again, I thank you for your time and I hope to hear from you again on this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, Edward. Wonderful job. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening in. You can find this podcast and other episodes, as well as other great educational resources on the virtual Pharmacopedia website with your UNC onion and password at bit.ly slash virtual farm. That's bit.ly slash virtual P-H-A-R-M.